Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Welcome back. At the end of last week's episode, we left off with the indictments of the six men charged in the death of Teddy Deegan. They were Peter Lamoni, Joseph Salvati, Louis Greco, Ronnie Cassesso, Roy French, Henry Tamilio, and the government star witness, Joe Barboza. If you missed the first two parts of Teddy's story, the links are in the show notes. After the indictments were returned, the Suffolk County DA, Garrett Byrne, issued a statement commending the FBI for their work in the case. A memo from the Boston SAC to Hoover noted, quote, as a matter of information, this entire case, which was presented to the grand jury by D.A. Byrne, was developed through the efforts and able handling of Barboza by special agents H. Paul Rico and Dennis M. Condon of the Boston office. They also cooperated fully with D.A. Byrne in the preparation of this matter for the grand jury. I know that this indictment would not have been possible in any sense of the word if it were not for the efforts of these agents and the FBI at Boston. I further recommend that Supervisor John F. Keogh, who supervised the entire program and was involved deeply in the developments and the planning relative to Barboza and the matters attendant to this indictment, be strongly commended for his excellent supervision, end quote. Before we get into the trial, I want to mention that in January of 68, charges were brought against Ronnie Cassesso, Ralphie Chung Lamatina, and Nikki Ventola. The three were accused of offering $50,000 to another prisoner at the Norfolk prison named Robert Glavin to confess to the murder of Teddy. Glavin was doing life already for killing Wilfred Capalbo in Worcester, who was a local loan shark, back in May of 66, but Glavin wasn't going to play along with the trio. Someone wrote on his t-shirt, rat equals PC, protective custody. Glavin had to be transferred out of Norfolk. The court was unable to proceed because of issues with the attorney's schedules who were representing each of the men. Glavin would go on to testify at the Deegan murder trial, but then decided to escape. He fled from the Barnstable County Jail after sticking a gun in the back of the head of a corrections officer in October of 68. Glavin made it out to Portland, Oregon, where he made a living as a writer for a local publication. His adventure came to an end in December of 69 when he was captured in New Haven, Connecticut. The murder trial began on May 27, 1968. Judge Felix Forte presided over the trial. A Harvard Law grad, Forte had been the judge in the 1956 Brinks trial. Ed McNamara and his FBI team had brought their investigation to a successful conclusion, achieving guilty verdicts for all of the men allegedly involved. You'll recall that their star witness in that case was Specky O'Keefe, who it is now very clear was given a script to memorize and then coached by the feds. Forte had also been rewarded for his work and gave lectures in Sicily, Italy, and Sardinia afterward. He represented President Kennedy at the 1961 centennial celebration of the unification of Italy and received a cross of the Cavalier of the Crown of Italy. We need to FOIA the Brinks case. Yeah, we do. Forte had also provided over the travesty that was the 1965 Georgie McLaughlin murder trial. 
The feds were planning on similar satisfying results in the Deegan murder trial and were leaving nothing to chance. All of the accused had been held without bail except Barboza, who was being held by the U.S. Marshals in protective custody, including at one point in Fort Knox, where one of his guards was then-MP John Morris, who would later become known for being one of the corrupt FBI handlers of Whitey Bulger and Stevie Fleming. Tamilio Salvati, Cassesso, and Barboza were charged with conspiracy to commit murder, and Lamoni, Greco, and French were charged with the actual murder. One thing that irks me is that every newspaper article Teddy was referred to as an associate of Georgie McLaughlin if that was if that was the reason for killing Teddy. The early days of the trial were filled with pretrial motions and jury selection. On May 27th, Barboza pleaded guilty to a conspiracy charge to kill Anthony Stavopoulos. No sentence was imposed by Judge Forte. The other six men were also charged with conspiracy to kill Stats that same day. Barboza faced no further charges in Teddy's death. The jury selection process delayed the beginning of the trial until June 29th, one month and a day in total. On the first day of the trial, the jurors were taken by bus to the murder scene in Chelsea and the Ebtide in Revere. On July 1st, the jurors learned that Teddy had been shot a total of six times and the jury was shown slides of the wounds. Barboza, Stavopoulos, and a man who lived near the murder scene were scheduled to testify. Barboza was the first to take the stand. He stated that his relationships with the six defendants were both business and social. He testified that the murders of Deegan, Hannon, and Delaney were ordered by the office, referring to Raymond Patriarca because they were the perpetrators of the Popolo home invasion. According to Barboza's tale, he met with Peter Lamoni on January 20th, 1965, who told him that the office couldn't allow them to get away with the robbery. I want to note that Hannon and Delaney were already dead by the time Barboza's alleged meeting with Lamoni took place. During Barboza's testimony, he said that the police had found clothing that belonged to the Popolo family in Hannon's home, which was proof that their murders were justified. I'm of the opinion that Barboza and Jimmy Flemmy planted the clothing there to cover up the fact that it was them and Anthony Sacramoni who committed the robbery. Barboza also testified that Lamoni offered him $7,500 for the hit on Teddy, but Barboza said he needed to check with Henry Tamilio first before making a decision. The conversation with Tamilio supposedly took place later that month in the ebb tide when Tamilio gave his blessing for the hit. How convenient that the conversation didn't take place at the Coinomatic. By now, the public was aware there was a wiretap placed in Raymond Patriarca's office. Barboza said that the office owned 20% of the ebb tide, and since Teddy walked in waving a gun at Barboza, that it was an offense towards the office. Like they cared. <laughs> the only one who cared was Barboza. He was afraid of losing his street rep. A side note about Henry Tamilio's interest in the ebb tide. On April 15th, 1965, a little over a month after Teddy was killed, the wiretap at Raymond Patriarca's picked up a conversation between Henry and Raymond about the ebb tide. Henry told Raymond that the ebb tide had become a hangout for the local hoodlums and that he had advised all of them stay out of the club until, quote, the heat is off, unquote. Well, how did that work out? Three months later, Romeo Martin had his last meal there, thanks to Barboza. Okay, back to Barboza's testimony. He went on to say that he first met Cassesso and Greco in Florida in 1963. Then in February of 1965, he supposedly met with Cassesso and Greco and offered to cut them in on the $7,500 fee being paid to him by Lamoni. According to Barboza's testimony, Roy French had been robbing with Teddy and had problems with Buddy McLean. 
So French agreed to set up Teddy in exchange for Barboza squashing Roy's beef with McLean. I can't. During Barboza's second day of testimony, he described how he received payment from Lamoni, claiming Lamoni handed him seven packets of $1,000 each and five $100 bills. The payoff occurred in a car that was parked in the North End, not far from the doghouse, which was the nickname for Jerry Angelo's headquarters. Barboza reported that he told Lamoni that he and Cassesso were responsible for the hit with the assistance of French, luring Teddy to the spot where he was killed. He went on to say that French shot Deegan twice in the back of the head while Greco and Romeo Martin waited outside of the building. Furthermore, Barboza claimed that he, Cassesso, and Salvati drove off when they saw a Chelsea police officer approaching their car. The three of them were supposed to kill Stathopoulos. To add to the pile of lies and provide a reason for why Greco's name was never mentioned before Barboza's grand jury testimony, Barboza said Greco wanted to keep his involvement a secret. How could anyone sitting on that jury buy anything that came out of that man's mouth? Just look at the photos of him and the videos of him are worse, but the court withheld actual evidence so the jurors only really heard Barboza's version of events, or rather Rico and Condon's scripted version of events. Barboza continued retelling his tale, claiming they all met in an apartment on Fleet Street to divide up the money that he received from Lamoni. The tally was $1,500 each to Cassesso and Romeo Martin. Salvati and Chico Amico, 750 each, and 1500 in his own pocket to be split with Greco. According to Barboza, Lamoni wasn't upset that Stats got away. Wrapping up his three days of testimony, he added that Roy French reported to him that Stats called attorney Farisi that night Teddy was killed, believing Teddy and Roy had been arrested. He also tried to claim that Farisi wasn't really Stats' lawyer and lied to the police when they asked him how he knew about Teddy being in Chelsea claiming attorney-client privilege. Barboza testified that he was present in Farisi's office with Roy French later, and Farisi said, quote, we are in trouble because he wants Stats' lawyer and should have claimed a lawyer-client relationship. Barboza claimed that French told Farisi that Stats would take care of it, and Farisi replied, I hope so because we'll be in trouble if it isn't. I want to add that Farisi and Fitzgerald were law partners in the same office, and if one wasn't available, they frequently covered for each other's clients, including Barboza, who benefited from both Farisi and Fitzgerald's counsel. You'll recall that Al Farisi had represented Barboza on multiple charges over the years. After the July 4th break, the cross-examination of Barboza began. While on the stand on July 5th, Barboza told attorney Ronnie Chisholm that he has becoming confused by the defense counsel's questioning. Because he was a fucking liar. You can't keep track of lies, but the court allowed the charade to continue. Well, it was 40 presiding after all. Mm -hmm. Ronnie Chisholm dragged out a calendar and got Barboza to revise his testimony about his trip to Florida. Chisholm kept pounding away at Barboza, getting Barboza to admit that he, his wife, and child were living in protective custody guarded by the U.S. Marshals. Chisholm also tripped Barboza up when he asked offhandedly, didn't Deegan pull a gun on you once? Barboza sat forward on the stand and barked, Mr. Chisholm, no one pulled a gun on me. But Ronnie asked again, didn't Mr. Deegan pull a gun on you at the ebb tide three weeks before and make you back down? Barboza regained control and calmly answered, definitely not. Again, the man was a liar and couldn't stand the fact that Wiry Teddy had the balls not only to pull a gun on Barboza, but do it in the ebb tide in front of Barboza's crew. 
Teddy had only started carrying not six months prior, but that first set from Cassesso didn't even work. <laughs> I hope he'd gotten a new set by then. <laughs> the trial continued on Saturday with Lamoni's attorney, Robert Stanziani, beginning his questioning of Barboza. Stanziani called the jury's attention to the fact that Barboza had lifted his cup of water with his left hand, which was significant because ballistics had shown that one of Deegan's murderers was left-handed. Barboza told Chisholm and Stanziani that he was, quote, going all the way, unquote, regardless of the consequences to provide the state's case. Quote, I don't care now, unquote, he said. At one point, Barboza shot out his hand, pointing it at Stanziani and insisting, I'm telling the truth. Greco's attorney, Lawrence O'Donnell, accused the DA of leading the witness through his objections. The judge, of course, sided with the DA. Stanziani continued grilling Barboza on Monday. Ronnie Chisholm was chastised by the judge for making comments during Stanziani's questioning. Barboza asked Stanziani to step away from him several times when Stanziani was showing him letters that Barboza had written to Virginia Tresca, a woman who lived in Somerville, who he was keeping company with. The following day, it was attorney O'Donnell's turn to cross-examine Barboza. He testified that he orchestrated the murder but didn't participate in it or witness the shooting. Barboza stepped off the witness stand in order to show how the events unfolded using a board and props. The car and flag were green, and O'Donnell told Barboza that he hoped he wasn't offended by the color green. Barboza asked, why should I be offended? I've got some good old Irish friends. O'Donnell then asked, was Teddy Deegan one of them? But Barboza didn't respond. The end of the cross-examination came when O'Donnell attempted to question Barboza about his conversion to Judaism in 1964. D.A. Zalkin objected, and Judge Forte brought the session to an end. O'Donnell had one more day to question Barboza. It was his eighth day on the stand, and tempers were flaring. One question thrown at Barboza was if Mission Impossible was his favorite TV show. Barboza replied, it used to be, but now my favorite is the FBI. When O'Donnell asked him about his wife, Claire Cohen, Barboza lost it and shouted, you don't like Jews, do you? O'Donnell denied Barboza's accusation, saying he defended people of all creeds and colors in his work as a public defender. Nothing pertinent came out of that day's testimony. On July 11th, attorney Joseph Bolero finally got his chance to interrogate Barboza. Barboza stated he agreed to orchestrate Teddy's murder in an effort to increase his status with the LCN and that the money meant nothing to him. He described Peter Lamoni as a high-ranking LCN member. There was no shortage of drama during their exchange either. Barboza asked why Bolero was looking at him that way. Bolero replied, may the record show it was a look of disgust. Not one to be one-opt, Barboza shot back, no it wasn't, you're trying to irritate me. The next day, state police ballistics expert Captain John Collins took the stand to give details about the three guns that were used to kill Teddy. Captain Collins testified under cross-examination by Bolero that there was the possibility that four guns, three forty-fives, and a thirty-eight had been used instead of three guns. Chelsea Police Captain Joseph Kozlowski also took the stand. Bolero requested that Kozlowski submit the written reports of the night Teddy was killed. The Chelsea Police failed to provide the original report and instead submitted a new one. In Kozlowski's revised statement, he claimed that he saw Romeo Martin's car at 10 p.m. on the night of March 12, 1965, but under cross by Bolero, he stated that it was closer to 9 p.m., which matched the initial reports. 
When questioned by Bolero why he had changed his testimony to correspond with Barboza's testimony, Kozlowski stated that after conferring with two other officers in 1966, it refreshed his memory. Who were the two officers, Rico and Condon? They were probably blackmailing Kozlowski, too. Surely there is no shortage of compromise on more than a few of these people. For our listeners who are not familiar with the Russian word kompromat, it translates to compromising material used to coerce politicians, businessmen, and public figures. The Russians aren't the only ones who used it. Hoover was known to have endless files of kompromat on individuals. We'll have to do a bonus episode about who Hoover maintained surveillance on. Ooh, that would be a good one. Commies, MLK, and other politicians. Yep. As we mentioned in previous episodes, this is what Kozlowski's original report said. Chelsea Captain Joseph Kozlowski was around 4th Street at 9.30 p.m. and saw a red car with the motor running and three men inside. The rear license plate was obstructed, but it would later be revealed that it was Romeo Martin's car. Officer Kozlowski approached the driver and the driver sped off. He described the driver as Romeo Martin. The man in the back seat was stocky with dark hair and a bald spot in the center of his head. The description was clearly Jimmy Flemmy, but obviously Barboza and the feds had to make sure that Jimmy's name was left out of the case entirely. To solve this problem, Barboza told the jury that Joe Salvati was dressed in a disguise that included a wig that made him appear bald. I can't. Prior to his testimony, Stathopoulos was asked to identify Louis Greco as one of the men at the scene of the Deegan murder. According to Stathopoulos, prosecutor Jack Zalkin pressed him to testify that Louis Greco was the other man who came out of the alley with Roy French. Stathopoulos told Zalkin that he was not able to identify the second man. Zalkin then informed Stathopoulos that he did not have to be 100% certain, but that 99% certainty was sufficient. Stathopoulos was aware that the individual who came out of the alley was carrying a gun in his right hand and that he did not have a limp. Later, Stathopoulos was told that Greco was left-handed and that he did have a limp. When Stathopoulos asked Salton how he would be able to identify Greco in court, he was provided the order of seating for the defendants. In Stathopoulos' opinion, both Jack Zalkin and Detective John Doyle knew that Louis Greco was not at the scene of the Deegan murder, but they wanted him bad. Finally, on July 12th, Anthony Stathopoulos took the stand as a prosecution witness. He began his testimony stating that a Chelsea policeman was in on the burglary that Teddy and Roy French were supposed to participate in. The unnamed policeman was the person who left the door unlocked to the beneficial finance company where Teddy was killed. Stat said he first learned about the Chelsea score from the proprietor of a dairy shop named Charles Moore. Moore had told him the heist would have to happen during the second police shift as the beat cop on duty would go along with it. That ended his testimony for the day. Stats was back on the stand on Monday. He said he saw two men walk into the alley where Teddy was the night of his murder, Roy French and Louis Greco. This testimony was false, but the feds had convinced Stats that Greco wanted to kill him, and if Greco remained on the streets, he would kill Stats. Considering how many attempts had been made on Stats's life, one can understand why he believed the feds and thought it prudent to agree to perjure himself by placing Greco there. To top everything else off, he had been in protective custody at that point since September of 67. His life was in the hands of the feds. Back to Stats' testimony. 
He said that Roy French had asked the two of them when he came to the car if either of them were carrying a gun. They both replied in the negative. Teddy had a screwdriver. The following day, he was back on the stand retelling his prior statements about how he believed when he heard the gunshots that Teddy and French had run afoul of the police. The next witness to take the stand was Chelsea Police Lieutenant Thomas Evans. During Evans's testimony, Attorney O'Donnell accused the court of double standards holding the prosecution in higher regard than the defense counsel. Judge Forte immediately called a recess. When Evans took the stand again that afternoon, he testified that later that evening he questioned French, who had been locked up that night for a fight at the ebb tide. There was blood on French's shoes and jacket, which he explained to Evans were a result of an altercation. Evans returned the shoes and jackets to French when attorney Fitzgerald arrived to bail French out. Stats's brother, Roberto, was the last to testify that day, verifying that he did lend his car to his brother the evening of March 12th. On July 17th, Bolero asked the judge to declare a mistrial on behalf of Henry Tamilio based on the grounds that comments made about Tamilio by other attorneys during the trial would have prejudiced the jury members' opinions of Tamilio, preventing him from receiving a fair trial. Forte then victimized himself, saying that the court was subjected to insults and insinuations made by the defense counsel. These remarks were made after the jury had left the courtroom. Needless to say, a mistrial was not declared. In his first public appearance since a car bombing took one of his legs, attorney John Fitzgerald was to testify for the government. Fitzgerald was driving Barboza's James Bond-style car at the time of the bombing. Bolero jumped to his feet and demanded that the jury be removed when he saw Fitzgerald being brought in by the court officers in a wheelchair. While the commotion was going on, Judge Forte called FBI Special Agent Dennis Condon to the stand. Condon had received permission from the Department of Justice to testify at the trial. Bolero began questioning Condon. Is it fair to say that you and Agent Rico have been major figures, so to speak, with regard to the investigation surrounding the information furnished by Mr. Barboza? No, sir. It's not. No, sir. Well, you have been participating in it. Is that correct? As it pertains to federal matters, yes, but not as it pertains to state matters? We have not been the principal figures, no, sir. I see, but you have been part of it. Is that correct? Yes, sir. All right, since Mr. Barboza has been testifying on state matters rather than federal matters, do you say that you have no longer been concerned about the purity of testimony that he might give in a state court, a federal court, or any kind of court? I am always concerned about the purity of testimony on the part of any witness involving any matter that I am concerned with. Obviously, the feds had adopted an ends justifies the means policy, not just encouraging informants to perjure themselves, but their agents as well. Condon would double down on his lies 35 years later when questioned by the Burton Committee, claiming that local prosecutors developed the Deegan case and that the FBI did not take credit for developing the Deegan prosecution. Back to the trial. John Fitzgerald took the stand and described his alleged meeting with Henry Tamilio at the Bayside Lounge in Revere on July 11, 1967, during which Tamilio told him that Greco was his agent in all of his dealings with Barboza. During Fitzgerald's second day of testimony, he said he met Louis Greco at his law partner Al Farisi's house on August 6, 1967. According to Fitzgerald, Farisi told him they were willing to have Arthur Pearson say that Chico Amico stabbed him. Pearson would then say Barboza and a second man saved him. 
You can hear more about that case in episode 24. Fitzgerald said that Farisi and Greco offered $25,000 for him to give to Barboza and a promise to straighten out Pearson. Supposedly, Farisi made a motion with his finger in a gesture like firing a gun. They made the man a judge. He was collecting Barboza's Shylock money, driving his car, and banging Dorothy Barshard, who was banging Spike O'Toole, Barboza, and who knows who else. We know the compromise the feds had on Fitzgerald. And then he went crying to the feds when his home insurance was canceled because of the bombing. Talk about chutzpah. You recall that when Fitzgerald's leg, leg was blown off six months earlier, his first demand before he was put under anesthesia was that special agents Rico and Condon came to see him. In recovery, Fitzgerald told the two agents that he was going to write a letter to Barboza telling him that because he lost a leg in the bombing, Barboza should turn on these people and provide testimony that would send them all to jail. Rico told Fitzgerald that he would prefer that Barboza testify about whatever he could without Barboza being pressured into testifying against specific individuals. Rico said in his report, quote, if we feel that at a later date that Baron Barboza is holding out, we then may ask Fitzgerald's assistance, but we do not want Barron to be motivated by revenge, end quote. And in a 1970 memo from J.H. Gale to Cartha DeLoach noted that Special Agent Rico was additionally instrumental in developing a second witness in the Deegan case, attorney John Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald also wrote a letter praising Rico at about the same time, which read in part, quote, in all of my dealings with Paul Rico, I have never found him making unethical promises or deals or undertaking commitments which he could not fulfill. In closing, although I lost a leg in the so-called war against organized crime, if I had to do it over again, I would follow the same road and my motivations would largely be the result of integrity professionalism and the high traditions of your organization is exemplified in my eyes by Paul Rico, end quote. He left out the part about the benefits of banging Dorothy for nearly a decade. I almost choked reading that quote. I don't know how you said that with a straight face. Oh, fuck. Fitzgerald wouldn't know integrity and professionalism or ethics if it blew off his leg. It did. Trapping informants, blackmailing witnesses into committing perjury and ordering murders. Well, for him, those were high standards. After Fitzgerald's testimony, the state rested their case. Monday, July 22nd, would see the defense present their side. Valero rested his case without calling a single witness in defense of Henry Tamilio. The first person to take the stand was Peter Lamoni. He stated that he had first met Barboza in February of 65 and that bad blood existed between them from the start. First, because Lamoni had refused to fire Barboza's girlfriend as a waitress in a West End social club in which Lamoni was active, and second, because of Lamoni's friendship with a man who owed money to Barboza. He denied ever contracting Barboza to kill Deegan, but he did admit to giving street loans to people at a 2% interest rate. When asked if he knew Jerry and Julo, Lamoni said that he was friends with both Jerry and his brother Danny. Lamoni also said he was a manager at Jay's Lounge, which was owned by Jerry's brother, Michael Angiulo. Lamoni's wife also testified that day. She stated that her husband was with her at a doctor's appointment on the day and time that Barboza claimed to have been contracted by Lamoni to kill Deegan. The next person to testify was Roy French. He vehemently denied that he set up Teddy doing so in dramatic fashion, getting up from the stand and acting out the events that happened on the evening of March 12, 1965. 
His testimony confirmed what Stathopoulos had said earlier. French said that Teddy led the way into the alley. Teddy was about 15 feet in front of him when French fell down and the shots rang out. To add to the impact of his testimony, French threw himself on the courtroom floor and crawled as he said he did that night. He also denied ever meeting Barboza or even owning or carrying a firearm. John Savetti testified for Peter Lamoni. He was the man who took a loan from Barboza that Lamoni referred to in his testimony. The loan was for $50 to be paid back $10 a week for six weeks for a total of $60, but Savetti had fallen behind on his payment. Barboza stabbed him multiple times, and the only reason he wasn't killed was because Ronnie Cassesso stepped in and stopped Barboza. The tension grew in the courtroom, and Judge Forday sent the jury out and demanded that a turn demanded attorney O'Donnell to his chambers. When Forday returned to the courtroom, he banned any further motions for a mistrial by the defense attorneys. The following day, Greco took the stand and said he knew Barboza, but always disliked him. When asked if his nickname was Red Rose, Greco confirmed that yes, he earned that nickname because he liked to garden and loved roses. He also testified that he and his family had been living in Florida during the month of March 1965 and didn't return to Massachusetts until late April or early May of that year. Like the others, he denied in participating in the planning or murder of Teddy. He held up under Zalkin's brutal cross-examination, denying Stathopoulos' claim that he was in the alley the night Teddy was murdered. Zalkin wanted to know about his use of the word Judas when he was arrested and if it was a reference to Roy French. Greco said he was referring to Barboza, who everyone knew had become an informant. Joseph Salvati followed Louis Greco on the stand. Salvati said he did not know Barboza personally at the time of Teddy's murder, but he had seen him around the North End. Barboza stood out as he always dressed in all black with a black hat. That concluded the testimony. During the closing arguments, Zalkin admitted that the world would be a better place without men like Joe Barboza. Zalkin blamed the six defendants for Barboza's existence, saying men like them enabled Barboza to prey on people. In their closing arguments, the defense attorneys pointed out that the prosecution had offered no witnesses to corroborate Barboza's testimony. Lamoni's lawyer, Robert Stanziani, called Barboza, quote, a criminal bent on revenge, unquote. He knows the ways of the streets and gutters. That's the way he lived, by the gun. He quoted a letter written by Barboza to his girlfriend, Virginia Tresca. I don't care whether they are innocent or not, they go. Stanziani maintained that Barboza's purpose in testifying other than revenge was to secure his freedom and receive money so he could take up again with Tresca. The case was handed over to the jury on the evening of July 30th. They spent seven hours and five minutes in deliberations, reaching a decision just before noon on the 31st. Judge Forte had been laid up in the Deaconess Hospital with a fever, but was rushed back to the courthouse with the state police escort to hear the verdict and impose the sentence. Louis Greco, Ronnie Cassesso, Peter Lamoni, and Henry Tamilio were given the death penalty. Tamilio and Cassesso had already been sentenced to five years in prison in the William Maffeo murder case back in March. French and Salvati were sentenced to life in prison. Louis Greco was the only one who chose to make a statement to the court prior to being sentenced. Quote, I'm guilty of two things, going to Lechmere sales and lying about my refrigerator and domestic troubles with my wife. I'm also guilty of being born of Italian parentage. I'm not guilty of this murder. I took a lie detector test and it showed that I did not do it, end quote. 
Forty addressed the jury, quote, you have given notice that the community will not stand for gangland murders. You had the courage of your convictions and it did take courage. Thank you. All six men were transferred to Walpole State Prison where the electric chair was located. Frankie Salemi later recounted that after the convictions were handed down, Rico and Condon came into the shop like they usually did. Condon was elated over their success and said, I wonder how Louis Greco likes it on death row. Salemi replied, how can you say that, Dennis? You're a Knights of Columbus. You're a holy name society. Well, if you're so smart and you think you know so much, why don't you get on the stand and testify? Denny shot back. Dennis, who's going to listen to me? Who's going to believe me? I'll get on the stand if you do. You won't get by St. Peter in the gate. You can't. You broke one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness. You can't get by him, Dennis. So let me continued. Once I hit the sore spot of the religious aspect with him, then he really blew his top. According to an FBI memorandum written by Special Agent Raymond Ball, on August 2nd, Frankie Salemi was very vocal in his disgust of the verdict. He stated that DA Garrett Byrne was trying to make an empire for himself and that something should be done about Fitzgerald, saying it was too bad they hadn't finished him off. Where's the lie? (laughs) Well, Salemi said that the district attorney's office had lied, the witnesses in the trial had lied, and all the feds had lied, and the only ones that didn't lie were the defendants. Given that the men were all convicted of murder, filing for appeals was an expected part of the process. But before that could happen, attorneys Ronald Chisholm, Robert Stanziani, and Lawrence O'Donnell had to face contempt charges. They were charged with acts of misconduct and disobedience. During the trial, O'Donnell accused Judge Forte of hovering over Barboza like an anxious mother. Chisholm had told Forte that he was employing a double standard and how the defense counsel had been treated versus the prosecutors. In the end, nothing came of the charges. On May 1st, 1970, the Boston Globe reported that Boston police detective William Stewart said that he believed Tamilio, Lamoni, and Greco were not involved in the Deegan murder. But the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court upheld the sentences of all six men just a few days later. Joseph Barboza submitted an affidavit on July 28, 1970, stating that he intended to recant his testimony from the Deegan trial. He said that he wished to recant certain portions of his testimony that related to the involvement of Henry Tamilio, Peter Lamoni, Joe Salvati, and Louis Greco in the killing of Teddy Deegan. Decades later, it would become public knowledge that the four names provided by Barboza were consistent with information already in the hands of law enforcement. The following day, journalist Jerome Sullivan ran a piece in the Boston Globe detailing Barboza's affidavit. That same day, attorney Bolero filed motions for a new trial for Henry Tamilio. A few days later, Lamoni filed motions for a new trial also. On August 27, 1970, attorney Ethley Bailey wrote a memorandum to Bolero. Among other things, Joseph Salvati and Louis Greco were not present at all. Further, Henry Tamilio and Peter Lamoni had nothing to do with arranging Deegan's murder, nor had they any reason to believe that it was going to occur. The person sitting in the rear of the automobile, which the Chelsea police captain saw, was in fact bald and was Vincent Jimmy Fleming. A guard at Walpole said that Barboza asked to see Henry Tamilio on one of his first days back at Walpole in the summer of 70. The guard said he brought Tamilio to Barboza and Barboza told Tamilio that he was sorry that he had lied about Tamilio after Tamilio had been like a father to him. He said it grieved him and that he couldn't sleep at night. He swore on his children that he would straighten it out. 
But less than two years later, in February of 72, Henry Tamilio was indicted on charges of race-fixing at Suffolk Downs. Joe Barboza was the state's star witness in the race-fixing probe. I hope Tamilio spit in Barboza's face. Barboza's cellmate at Walpole in the summer of 1970 was a man named William Garraway. Garraway was in prison for the 1967 murder, murder of David Sidlowskis. We briefly discussed Sidlowskis in episode 27. It's believed that Johnny Moderano was responsible for Sidlowskis' death. Garraway had also been accused of murdering Tony Varanis, but his own closing testimony was apparently so eloquent that the jury found him not guilty. Varanis was also Johnny Moderano's handiwork. Years later, he would confess to the murder as part of his plea agreement with the authorities. No shortage of wrongfully convicted people in Massachusetts. That's for sure. Garraway later claimed that Barboza had threatened his family, and that's why he turned him in. According to Garraway's version of events, he went to Ronnie Cassesso and told him, this guy's gone, he's never getting out of prison, he's not hitting the street. And Cassesso asked me what happened, and I told him, and he said, well, he might get off and go his own way. And I said, no, he's not going his own way because he's not getting out. I'm nailing him today. I'm sending for the DA today. And Cassesso said, well, let him get out of prison. If you don't, he'll be screaming. He'll be down on all of us. So I said, all right, he's got two days. And two days after he left, I turned him in to the DA. Garraway turned Barboza in for the murder of Clay Wilson in California, but in November of 1970, Garraway signed an affidavit. Quote, Barboza admitted to me that five out of the six men he gave testimony against, four of whom were on death row, were innocent. The men he included among the innocent were Henry Tamilio, Peter Lamoni, Louis Greco, and Joseph Salvati. Anthony Stathopoulos executed an affidavit on January 5, 1971. It stated, Barboza told me that he was going to keep Flemmy out of it because he said that Flemmy was a friend of his and the only one who treated him decently. In April 1971, James Southwood of the Boston Herald Traveler reported that Barboza told him that if the government was betraying him, he would get revenge. Quote, I put those people in jail and I can get them out, unquote. That same month, a Boston newspaper reported that Boston detective William Stewart swore in an affidavit that he gave evidence to John Doyle, chief investigator for the Suffolk County DA's office, that Louis Greco, Peter Lamoni, Henry Tamilio, and Joe Salvati were innocent of the Teddy Deegan murder. Stewart said that Doyle did not care and indicated that the men were probably guilty of other crimes. In June of 1972, the death penalty was ruled unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court in the landmark case Furman v. Georgia. Massachusetts complied with the ruling, but the court refused to review the men's convictions. Later that year in October, Ronnie Cassesso and his aunt were indicted on a charge of conspiring to have William Garraway tell authorities that Joe Barbrosa had lied during the Deegan trial. The indictment said that Garraway was asked to commit perjury and say that Barboza told him of the false testimony while they were in prison together. The Norfolk County DA claimed that he had intercepted $10,000 in cash that was intended to pay off Garraway, and the object of the perjury plot was to get Garraway to say that Barboza had lied on the stand at the Deegan trial. Garraway was placed in protective custody at Walpole. He eventually pleaded the fifth that Cassesso's trial and the case was dismissed for lack of evidence. On January 5th, 1973, Jimmy was transferred from Walpole to a prison in Illinois, along with Georgie McLaughlin and Ronnie Cassesso. 
Peter Lamoni was sent to a prison in Oregon. The authorities claimed that they had been plotting to take over the prison. Lamoni and Flemmy sued later that month. They were transferred back to Walpole. In May of 74, Cassesso and Greco tried again to seek a new trial in their case. They charged Barboza with committing perjury. F. Lee Bailey was scheduled to testify on behalf of the defense. Attorney Tom Troy filed on behalf of Cassesso and Greco. But by June of 74, Troy still couldn't find Tony's stats. The request for a new trial was denied. Joseph Salvati sought a parole hearing in November of 1980. The former chairman of the Massachusetts Parole Board requested the hearing on Salvati's behalf and supported his bid to have his sentence commuted. At the time of the request, Salvati already had 150 furloughs. Tamilio and Greco were seeking new trials at the same time. Peter Lamoni was working as a janitor at a pre-release center in Boston. Salvati, Tamilio, and Greco's requests were denied. In May of 1983, Lamoni, Tamilio, and Greco filed appeals again. By 1984, Louis Greco had taken eight lie detector tests, of which he passed all of them. He was seen by the parole board in 1984 with affidavits from Roy French and attorney F. Lee Bailey, but his request was once again denied. That same year, one event would shed light on what the Boston FBI field office was up to during the 1960s. Jack Red Kelly testified at the murder trial of Louis Minocchio. We'll be doing several episodes about this chain of events in season two. Jack Kelly testified that he was asked to commit perjury by Special Agent Rico in the Matteo Malay murder trial. He testified that he did commit perjury. Rico was also found to have committed perjury in that trial. When asked why he committed perjury, Kelly stated, quote, well, my life was in their hands, unquote. Later, Anthony Stathopoulos provided a similar explanation for why he committed perjury at the Deegan murder trial. It would be over a decade before the truth about Rico and the Boston field office would be brought to light, but Jack's testimony would be the catalyst that led to the investigation. I want to note that at the time of Jack's testimony, the FBI never addressed Jack's claims. No investigation was started. Had the FBI done their job, other lives might have been saved. The following year, Henry Tamilio died from respiratory failure on August 18, 1985. He'd been granted a commutation hearing by the parole board just two days earlier. On August 27, 1991, Ronnie Cassesso passed away, leaving behind his wife and three kids. During his stay in Walpole Prison, Ronnie ran the gift shop where he could be reached by phone. His nickname was the Maitre D, and he was known for riding around his blue Cadillac on his weekend furloughs. Nina and I will be writing a blog post about Ronnie soon and what the men's conditions were like when they were in Norfolk Prison. After countless appeals and commutation requests, Louis Greco also passed away in prison in 1995. The tragedy of his wrongful conviction would also lead to the death of one of his sons after the family won their lawsuit against the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. With the money in hand, his son OD'd and passed away. On March 27, 1997, Joe Salvati finally got his sentence commuted and won his freedom. That same year, Greco's attorney, John Cavici, accused the governor, Weld of playing politics with murder. The lawyer said that all Greco had wanted to do was die in a veteran's home, but Weld denied him that dignity. Greco had been diagnosed with terminal cancer at the time of his last commutation request. With the scandal of Whitey Bulger and Stevie Fleming's informant fiasco, the Boston FBI's web of secrets began to unravel. Senator Dan Burton's Senate hearings would shed light on what was really going on in Boston dating back to the early 1960s. 
Dad, too, would find his relationship with the FBI and other federal agencies being called into question. He took a different route and outed himself. We'll cover that later next season. Most importantly, these hearings exposed the injustice that had been done to the falsely accused and the decades-long corruption of the Boston FBI field office. During those hearings, it was revealed that special agents Rico and Condon were so involved in the state case that they participated in the state grand jury preparation. 35 years later, the FBI redacted information pertaining to their grand jury appearances. Nevertheless, it appears that the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover himself, and his staff were being kept informed of the state grand jury developments in the case. And every law enforcement officer I've spoken to says that the feds have no jurisdiction in murder cases. From a legal standpoint, that's true. But the FBI had been involved in multiple murder cases, the Maffeo Malay case, for instance, that we mentioned earlier in the episode. The committee went on to say, quote, There appears to be no doubt whatsoever that the FBI played the pivotal role in the state's case. There is no indication that FBI personnel did not play a significant a role in assisting the state as in the Deegan case. Indeed, a letter from federal prosecutor Edward Harrington to Gerald Schur, who ran the Justice Department's <clears throat> Witness Protection Program from Washington, D.C., indicated just how involved federal law enforcement was in the Deegan case and its aftermath. As one senior FBI supervisor wrote to Deputy Director Cartha Deloach, quote, as a result of the FBI investigation in state court in Boston, six more were convicted in the 1965 slaying of Edward Deegan. La Cosa Nostra members Henry Tamilio, Ronald Cassesso, Peter Lamoni, and Louis Greco were all sentenced to death, while two Confederates were given life sentences. The committee agreed that the information obtained <clears throat> from the microphone surveillance of Raymond Patriarca would have provided some indication that there were problems with the Deegan murder prosecution. On August 8, 1971, J. Edgar Hoover informed the Attorney General that the Boston Police Commissioner and former FBI agent Edmund McNamara had requested the Patriarca information be made available to his office. Suffolk County District Attorney Garrett Byrne made the same request. A few days later, those requests were denied. Although those requests did not target information relevant only to the Deegan prosecution, the information found in the logs would have shown that Barboza had lied at the trial. How did the feds sleep at night? They never lost a second of sleep over it. Remember Rico's snarky remark during the hearings? What do you want from me? Tears? Rotten to the core. And to top it off, they received letters of accommodation from Hoover. Dear Mr. Rico, the manner in which you performed in the investigation of a local murder case involving Roy French and others was splendid, and I want to commend you. The successful prosecution of these subjects was a direct result of your noteworthy development of pertinent witnesses. I want you to know that I am most appreciative of your fine services. Sincerely yours, J. Edgar Hoover. Bullshit. Dear Mr. Condon, in recognition of the excellent fashion in which you performed in the investigation of a local murder case involving Roy French and others, I am pleased to commend you. You were highly instrumental in the development of principal witnesses and through your effective testimony at trial. All the subjects were successfully prosecuted. I do not want the occasion to pass without conveying my appreciation to you. Sincerely yours, J. Edgar Hoover. Go fuck yourself. I want to know why he singled out Roy French. You've got me, and I'm choking talking and saying these things. All charges were dropped against Peter Lamoni on January 31st, 2001. Roy French was freed in December of that same year. The charges against Louis Greco were posthumously dismissed in 2004 and Tamilio in 2007. 
Salvati was awarded $29 million, Lamoni was awarded $26 million, and $47 million was awarded to the estates of Greco and Tamilio. This award was affirmed by the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit in 2009. Peter Lamoni died June 19, 2017, and Roy French passed away in January of this year. Joseph Salvati is the only survivor of the six men, 89 years old and living in the Boston area. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening. Next week, we'll be discussing Frank Smith. If you've been listening in this season, you might recall his name. Frank was a bank robber, hitman, associate of Raymond Patriarca, and a Nazi sympathizer who lived out his later days in Maine. Please consider making a small donation to Nina and I so we can upgrade our equipment and help cover our expenses. And of course, please share an episode and leave us a review. Bye. Bye. Double Deal, true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.